This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. Welcome, everyone. I'm so pleased to have with me two friends one new and one old, um, Eddie Stern, who many of you I'm sure know as a pillar of the yoga community in New York City, and, uh, and my new friend Shantala Sri Ramaya, who is also my Vedic Sanskrit teacher, and I'm so happy to be studying with her. I thought today uh, that for this discussion, we could talk about some of the traditions of chanting, particularly the chanting of the Vedas uh, in India. And um, so we can share a little bit about the roots of the practice. Eddie is the one who introduced me to Shantala. And Eddie is also the one who has given me a roof and four walls to chant for many years in New York City, other than learning pranayam and um other things from him because he's such a student of the practice himself. So I'm going to take a couple of minutes to just do an opening invocation. And I would like to give you a little bit of background from their very tiny bios so you know who they are before we proceed with the discussion. So this is an invocation to Hanumanji, who helps us overcome obstacles and brings the life-giving Sanjivani herb to all of us. Om Atulita Baladhamam Hemashela Badeham Dhanujavana Krushanam Gyaninamagraganyam Sakalaguna nidhanam, vanaranamadisham, ragupati priya bhaktam, vatajatam namami. 
हरि ओम सो आई जस्ट से लिटिल बिट अबाउट शांतला शांतला स्टडीड संस्कृत चैंटिंग एंड इंडियन स्क्रिप्चर्स फ्रॉम एन अर्ली एज एज अ पार्ट ऑफ हर फैमिली ट्रेडिशन एंड स्कूल एजुकेशन इन बैंगलोर इंडिया वेर आई एम सोर्ट ऑफ फ्रॉम माई सेल्फ She has been mentored by several Vedic scholars and teaches a growing global community of students through her online platform. Just so you know, 35 countries, right Shantala? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Shantala is especially keen on connecting aspirants to the relevance of Vedas for personal development and to the source texts of yoga. She is based in Brussels, Belgium. She has developed a unique system to accurately and completely transmit all the nuances of Vedic phonetics to help support students learn without error. This is true. I know this as a student, right Eddie? Oh yeah, yeah. 100%. 100%. Eddie is a yoga teacher, author and a lecturer from New York City. He has been practicing yoga since 1987, ran his school in Soho. from 1993 to 2019 in the late 1990s and early 2000s the school became a focal point for ashtanga yoga in new york and an eclectic mix of downtown artists and spiritual speakers practicing and meditating next to each other eddie has a passion for seeking out diversity in all aspects of his work and uses a multidisciplinary combination of technology scientific research and collaboration to help further understanding education and access to yoga he continues to study philosophy sanskrit ritual science and religion as well as maintain a passion for the daily practice of yoga that's also true because especially the ritual part eddie do you know that uh, priest prakash is actually like our family priest now Wow. <laughs> he's great friends with my mother because he speaks Kannada and he's like part of the whole so we consult with him for what we need so um so welcome again both of you I'm so happy to to talk to both of you um I'm going to start Shantala by asking you about I know that you studied Sanskrit as a young as a young child and you've continued to do so and you even teach your children at home now I'd like to actually talk to you about your teachers. Um when you've shared with us and I've looked back also on some of your uh the history of your studies. Currently you study with M. Srinivasan of Chalakeri Brothers who are also based in Bangalore, correct? But you also talked about how your mom Saroj used to teach at home. and uh, i was wondering if you can share a little bit about that experience of having her as your mother and your teacher and being surrounded by these teachings yes i'm happy um to talk about you know this first of all i just want to say how fortunate i feel every day you know just realizing that i was born into this family you know with just the right conditions for me to be able to do what i'm doing today you know if not for that upbringing i think um it this would not have been possible so i always say my thanks every day for this amazing you know um, birth let's say and so my mother 
you know, she's um, she was a very simple lady, fierce, but very simple lady from the village. She's somebody who um, she dropped out of high school because she was really terrified of the math teacher. <laughs> and so she's someone, you know, very since she always told people that she was not educated. You know, she didn't finish her 10th grade even. But actually, she's one of the most highly, I don't know, um, qualified people to teach others. You know, she sort of put all her energy. I mean, thankfully, she dropped out of the conventional education system, I think, because she put all her energy into devotion. You know, so she was studying classical music since she was a child. And her parents also really encouraged her to study all these scriptures and things. And so she grew up also learning these things. And um, she took to, she started with classical music. So she was trained in classical music since she was a child. And she used to teach people in her home classical music. So Carnatic music. So, you know, although I say that I'm not formally trained in uh, Carnatic music, you know, I've had a lot of <laughs> training as a kid, but I'm one of those dropouts because, you know, I grew up and went to engineering college and discovered Pink Floyd and <laughs> so all the Carnatic music kind of dropped out of the scene. But she was a singer and she used to teach people, children, and lots of people would come home to teach from the beginning, which sort of developed and grew into a devotional practice. She started singing and teaching devotional music and then chanting. You know, she started to teach. The first thing I learned from her was the Lalita Sahasranama. And then she was teaching Bhagavad Gita and she was teaching. She was one of the biggest Devi, Devi devotees I know. So she used to teach Lalita Sahasranama and Saundarya Lahari. She taught hundreds and hundreds of people Saundarya Lahari because she wanted others to experience this, you know, waves of bliss, she would call it. She would say there is no greater bliss than Saundarya Lahari. Can you tell so, us just for a second, what is Saundarya Lahiri so people can know what you mean? Yeah, Saundarya Lahiri is a um, composition. Well, it's considered a composition by Shankaracharya. You know, he had this vision of baby and he had the, he experienced these waves of bliss and he turned that into poetry. So there are 100 verses considered very, very sacred on Devi. So you can call it, uh, you know, an extension of Lalita Sahasranama, in a way. But it's a different composition, you know. It's a different genre. I mean, it's a different uh, era as well. It's a different time of composition, and it's very beautiful. And then there's others, you know. There's Shivananda Lahiri, and there are so many things. So she and she used to teach, um, you know, the Durga Saptashati and or Devi Mahatmyam, more popularly known as Devi Mahatmyam. So she was quite famous in Bangalore. She would, you know, around Navaratri time, we wouldn't see her at all throughout Navaratri because she had all these different engagements. She would be reciting and teaching in different uh, institutions, homes, you know, just everywhere. So there were many times I'd follow her around. I was like, she'd call me to pick her up or drop her and <laughs> so I'd hang around her. I was always sitting on the fence kind of. <laughs> And, and but I learned a lot from her. So I went to her Saundarya Lahiri classes as well. And um, so yeah, the whole time, she was really, she's really my inspiration for what I do now. And I know your father is still in Bangalore and he is also a devout practitioner himself. He joined us in one of our classes. He is, he doesn't chant, 
but he is um, he's a great meditator and he's playing all the CDs and he listens to a lot of chanting but he is someone who's more um, he devotes himself to ritual and puja he's his entire day is a puja he grows the, his own flowers for the puja and the collection of these flowers it's itself a ritual the way he arranges these flowers to be washed before the ceremony itself is a ritual you should see what's happening in that in that home it's just uh, uh, so meticulous the way he does it you know so specific flowers for specific deities and so uh, he's he derives great joy from this and every evening he also he invokes my mother in his meditation and he says she does the ritual and it's very beautiful the way he he lives and his skin shines you know <laughs> for someone who's 85 he's just glowing it's amazing yeah i saw i, I really think it yeah i think it's from the puja i want to kind of continue in this flow shantala of talking about your family so uh did your father have a guru of his own before uh he met your mother did he grow up in this tradition as well my father considers himself you know uh, like a, a lone soldier <laughs> so he uh, has had a very troubled uh, childhood so he grew up a uh, kind of alone and he put himself through college and so he um, experienced a great deal of poverty uh, obstacles and things so he has devoted himself to betterment you know so he didn't want his children to experience any of those things so for him he dedicated himself to understanding and worshiping shri worshiping mahalakshmi and he considered this worship itself you know his guiding path and i could see what it did for him you know like even today this friday evening puja that he does you know for dedicated to mahalakshmi is really something you know <laughs> because every friday evening even when i was a kid it was my job to you know we do this um, in south india we wash the threshold and we put this haldi kumkum and a little rangoli and we put the put little feet of lakshmi coming into the house this was my job on friday evenings growing up you know and my dad would do the aarti and the puja and we had to leave the door open a little bit in the evening we would switch on the lights and leave the door open and wash the threshold and you know sort of decorate the entry to the house and he'd say that lakshmi is coming in on fridays so we have to decorate the house and switch on the lights and light the diyas and do this this prayer and he did that he's done that for decades and decades he continues to do it and he feels like he has developed a great relationship with resources you know money in particular like a very good relationship where he understands the importance of it but also you know within a certain framework you know so the first time he started to earn a good living he's helped family and he's helped other people you know build a house he's helped other people first before i mean you know all um, the family were settled before he built his own house and things like that so for him he didn't have a guru himself in that sense but what he did was to really encourage and support my mother 
in her pursuit. So she had a guru and who's still there in Bangalore, Mata Ananta Lakshmi, and she still, you know, receives me. And it's just, it's amazing. You need to have <laughs> quite a stomach to sort of withstand her presence. She's a very strong lady. And so she was my mother's guru. And my father really supported her to pursue that and sort of lived in that, you know, you know, let's say a blessing of her guru and all her spiritual practices. And my father was the great support. So she didn't have to, you know, uh, do other, other things. Her entire time she spent either, you know, uh, looking after us or her own practice of chanting. So she had really had a lot of time to do these things thanks to my dad. So that. That's beautiful to share. I understand that. I can actually just see that and feel how that happens. Um, I mean, for me also, you know, I didn't have, uh, as I grew up, you know, we had a, a simple practice in our home at night. You know, my mom would have an altar. We traveled all around the world, so we weren't able to um, be involved in practices so deeply. Um, but somehow when I got to America and I... I met Krishna Das first and I started practicing yoga is when I sort of the waves pushed me back to that shore, you know, and that's that's where I went. And through the Westerners practicing here, I was able to find my way back to India, which is a really beautiful thing for me. And now the way my life is because of the work that I do, I, I have more time to do practice and just be completely involved in it. But and I, I realize that, you know, you, some in some cases you do have to be born into it, but otherwise the transmission just comes, like from whatever samskaras we might have had from before. So, for example, Eddie. <laughs> um, Eddie, when did you start practicing yoga? I started practicing yoga in about 1987. That was when you started practicing. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure. That's right. And did that take you back to India right away? Or did you were you studying here? The I, I was about 20 years old. Uh, I didn't go to university or college, as we call it in America. Um, I had started a business in high school and ran it when I got out from high school. But I was always on some kind of a quest, even though I didn't know that I was on a spiritual quest because I didn't have the language for it. Then I met someone in a record shop that I was working in uh, called Bleaker Bob's, which is in the village. And he really introduced me to yoga, to vegetarian diet. But I wasn't doing asanas and things like that. It was mainly reading yoga sutras and reading um, Rajneesh books and meditating and chanting. And asanas came a little bit later. Um, can I share a funny little story about how... Um, Krishna Das first came to Jiva Mukti. Yes. This is really, uh, it's just one of those stories that goes to show you how strange the world is and how roundabout everything is. So in around 1970 or 71, uh, probably was, I think it was closer to 1970. I can't remember the exact date. Um, uh, Maharaji Neem Paroli Baba um, basically kicked Bhagavan Das out of India because he had visa troubles and he couldn't get a new visa. And Maharaja said, time to go home. Ram Das 
took Bhagavan Das to upstate New York to the house of a guy named Meatball Fulton. And Meatball Fulton, have you ever heard of Meatball Fulton? Only by name. Okay, so he, I'm, I met him one time when I went up to his, his house to visit him with Sharon Gannon. And um, Meatball Fulton was doing these amazing radio dramas uh, for all you kids out there who don't remember what a radio is. It's this thing that has shows that play on them. And radio dramas were like stories. So he had done a radio drama. It was a 10-part series called The Fourth Tower of Inverness. And it was a spiritual journey about this guy who was looking for, you know, he, who had a transcendent experience in the fourth tower, which is basically Turia, but it took place in Ireland. When he entered into the fourth tower, Meatball Fulton had Bhagavan Das singing as the accompanying soundtrack to that. Shri Krishna Govinda Hare Murare. And it was, you know, and he did it in a very nice etheric way and it was like beautiful. And so Sharon had these cassettes, these audio cassettes. And, um, you know, I was enthralled by this chanting. So I wrote a letter to Meatball Fulton. Uh, you know, I found his address in the, in the phone book. I wrote him a letter because back then we didn't have computers or the internet. And I said, who's singing this and where can I find it? And so he wrote me back and he said, it's Bhagavan Das. And um, I don't know where you can find the recordings. I don't have it anymore. But um, you could try writing the Love Serve Remember Foundation. So I wrote them and they sent me a catalog of all the cassettes they had. And so I bought them all. And I listened to them all. And that song was not on any of the cassettes. And I was really disappointed. But back then, you know, when I was teaching in Chief Mukti, we used to play music in classes. I know they still do. And um, one day... I was playing one of those cassettes and it was a particular one with someone who I didn't know who was singing on it, but it was my favorite bhajan, which was Shri Ram Jai Ram Jai Jai Ram, Shri Ram Jai Ram Jai Jai Ram. And my friend Maria Rubinati was in the class and she said, is that Krishnadas singing? And I said, I don't know. I have no idea who Krishnadas is. And she said, well, he's friends with my boyfriend, Charlie who went to meet Maharaji in the 1970s instead of going to college and took all of his college money, went to India, and as his mother said, went swimming in the Ganges and now has had amoebas for the rest of his life. So she said, I'm going to go tell him that you were playing that cassette. So she went, told Charlie, Charlie told Krishnadas. Krishnadas and Maria then came to Jeeva Mukti, and that's how Krishnadas met Sharon and David. And then he started his Monday night. I, I knew up to the part that I, I knew from the part where he met, he went to see Sharon and David because they had satsang, but I didn't know the entire backstory. So thank you for sharing that. <laughs> yeah, you must have gotten those tapes from the Ramdas tape library. That's what it used to be called back then. Ah, okay. Yeah, it became Love So Remember later. Yeah. That's where I got them. Great. Thanks for sharing that. So, um, Let's go back to the Vedas, since that's what uh, you and I are studying with Shantala. Shantala, can you just tell us a little bit about just basic background about how old the Vedas are? Because we understand that it is the basis. It's an oral tradition and it's the basis of uh, the teachings of yoga, 
of Bhagavad Gita and other important uh, practices that we are currently studying these days. So could you just give us a little bit of background on that? I mean, I can say it, but it's better if it comes from you. Well, uh, from what I know, it's one of the most debated topics is to ask how old the Vedas are. <laughs> so I don't know if we can definitely put a timeline to it, you know, anywhere from, you know, 1500 years to 5000 years to now, I think they're even saying 8000 years, uh, you know, so I think um, it's, it's easier to say that it's just the oldest thing we know. I think that would be more accurate than putting a specific time on it. But um, yeah, I mean, these are, um, uh, you know, the oldest spiritual works, let's say, from India. And it's not something that came into existence, you know, suddenly or in one time period. It's something that were revealed to a, a large number of rishis or seers over a fairly long period of time as well. So you can tell from the language of the mantras, you know, which ones are old, which ones are newer. It's sort of easy now, you know, after years of study, I'm able to sort of discern now which ones, you know, seem to be, have a newer language to it. So these were um, revelations or these are visions that the rishis had, and I call them super yogis. Because, um, you know, it's not like some sky god came out and said, you know, you 400 of the <laughs> rishis of the Rigveda, you're the chosen people. And here's the book of the Rigveda. Now go and pass it on to your disciples. You know, that's um, what our teachers tell us is that these rishis uh, were great practitioners of yoga. And it is through their spiritual discipline and practices that they were able to transcend certain, you know, um, let's say mortal <laughs> human states and, you know, normal human states. And so in this very pure space, these, these visions, they could understand exactly how the universe was arranged and just the interconnectedness of it. You know, they had this vision of how the universe is a network of laws. And through that vision, through that knowledge, they were able to live intelligently and navigate life intelligently. So it's actually, you know, the outcome is beautiful, very simple, very inspiring. And we can all have that, that intelligence. So the, these visions they had, they transcribed into clever, beautiful, mystical, sometimes cheeky poetry, which we call mantras. <laughs> And there's, they're very technical also in that. They're not, it's not ordinary poetry. There's a very clear structure to this, to this poetry. And it's, it's basically poetry of a very high caliber with definite and clear you know, psychological outcomes for us in terms of our inner transformation. If practiced you know, with that intention. It can also simply be enjoyed in terms of sound. You know, lots of people come to my class and they don't want to explore more than the sound. And even that is so beneficial. So, um, yeah, that's the, the long answer to your question. On <laughs> So, Vedas, uh, Veda means knowledge, right? Basically speaking. So, um, in one of our classes, you explained to us that how some of the Vedas are very specific to certain topics. For example, ecology, family, relationships, money, and such. Um, 
Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how it also relates to um, just pure devotion, you know, to divinity or divinity within ourselves? Like, how does that all come together in the mantras? Yeah, actually, for me, this this is really the most inspiring part of the Vedas, because, you know, just like you said, um, Veda means knowledge. It comes from this root verb, vid, you know, which also sounds like wisdom. So vid is basically knowledge. But this knowledge is not just, you know, what we would think is about your spiritual knowledge. It's not only Brahma Vidya. So it's not only speaking of about that. You know, it's knowledge to divinize all aspects of your life. So in the Veda, we don't see this artificial differentiation, you know, between your everyday life and your spiritual life. What the Veda is teaching us is that whatever life you're leading, you know, whether you're a yoga teacher or whether you're a carpenter or whether you're a businessman, you can divinize that life. You can get in touch with these Vedic deities, you know, gods or cosmic forces or psychological powers, whatever you might want to call them. We can establish a concrete relationship, start to become aware of these forces that sort of collaborate with us, you know, participate with us in our life and make things happen. And we can divinize whatever we are doing. Every step then becomes, you know, a divine. And this whole process is what the Veda calls yajna, you know, or it literally translates to your journey, basically your life journey. And so the Vedas, while there are these four classifications, the Rigveda, Yajurveda, Samaveda, and Atharva Veda. So there are certain attributes we give them. So like Rigveda is basically made of Rik mantras and they illuminate our minds. And Samaveda are basically Rigveda. So it's the same Rigveda mantras, but they're sung in this ecstatic way, but still very organized. So it's not the normal creative music that you hear. So it's still a chanting, but you need to be initiated and you need to learn some very specific things. But anyone who listens to any Samaveda chanting, it's just inexplicable. This feeling, you know, that it uh, invokes in you is just amazing. Yajurveda are yajus mantras and they power their, you know, they power our action. And so used in, you know, yagnyas and, you know, while performing um, these um, sacrificial um, rituals, basically, they, they sort of uh, lead our actions. And the Atharva Veda is really this, you know, we call it the book of perfection. So you can, through the learning these mantras, you can perfect various aspects of your life. How to be a good student, how to be a good teacher, how to be a good partner, how to find a good partner. And also relationship with um, with nature, living, and you know this very famous uh, Bhumi Suktam um, is from the Atharva Veda, which is such a great uh, you know testament to how the Vedic people lived and considered Mother Earth as a living organism, you know, and not just some um, inert you know piece of land and water and things, but sentient being uh, and worshipped Bhumi. So it's very inspiring, the, the range of knowledge in the Veda. I would love to hear that somehow, if there's a recording of it somewhere. 
I'll try to find it. I haven't learned the Bhumi Suktam. I've learned the Bhu Suktam, which is also a similar sort of uh, energy. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit, because I know that you also teach um, chanting to yoga students, um, students of yoga. How is that related to um, the asana practice that we are doing currently in this day and age? Um here and, and, and everywhere around the world. I have to say, I think Eddie would be great at answering this question. I okay, you should great. ask him first. He's uh, let's ask him wonderfully about this. Yeah. Um. Well, number one, I'm not entirely sure, uh, and number two, uh, I'll share what I I do know that um the um. A lot of the practices that we find in the Hindu tradition are classified into different categories. Uh, one category is practices that are done without mantras, a mantrika, and some are practices done with mantra. And um, with, and these encompass either ritual, chanting alone, or things that are accompanied with physical practices. So with Surya Namaskar, for example, some salutations, the Vedic Surya Namaskara mantras are from the Aruna Prashna, which is very long, 133 or 132, 133 um, anuvakas or paragraphs. And so it takes quite a long time to chant it. Uh, so this is the worship of the sun with mantras. And then a version of worshiping the sun without mantras is the shloka um, option, which is chanting something like the Aditya Hridaya, which Shantala will be, will be doing a course on um, in July uh, that I greatly look forward to. And then a, another way of doing the worship of the sun, which is of course our own uh, inner sun, the heart of, of our being, is for people who are not chanting any mantras or shlokas, and that is doing the physical Surya Namaskara itself. So these are the three ways that um, I've seen and heard from teachers in India speaking about the different classifications of practices. And one of the things is that we can't chant mantra without the power of breath, and we can't do asanas or things like Surya Namaskar, which are not asanas, but contain asanas within them without the power of the breath either. So it's the power of Vayu, which is the thing which carries forth all of the practices. And even to focus the mind, if you're doing a Manasa Puja, so there's no physical activities being done or no mantras being chanted, the mind in Vayu or breath and mind are, this, are linked together. So you can't focus your awareness without being able to focus the power of breath, at least internally as well. So the breath is the link for all of these different practices. Um, and um, the thing which determines what you do is adhikara, which is your eligibility for the different things that you're drawn to. And that's based on samskara, which is the imprint that we have that pulls us to do, you know, into our birth, and that then is going to guide everything. Um, so um, I, that's one of the ways that they're connected. Um, but you know, they're 
there are other things too. Um, you know, chanting Veda is a very particular um, sadhana. And then, you know, asanas will be another sadhana. But when in Patanjali, we see tapaswadhyaya ishvara pranidhana. So we need to do these three things in order to um, diminish the kleshas, the obstructions to self-knowledge. Tapas is going to be some type of austerity, um, something which heats us up a little, pushes us, challenges us. Asanas and pranayama and yama commonly fall into that category. Swadhyaya, Patanjali says and Vyasa says, is the chanting of mantras and the studying of holy books. So Adhyaya Swa, the chapters on the self, these are all the Upanishadic mantras and the Vedic mantras, which all have to do with self-realization and self-knowledge. So we should read those things and chant those things and learn how to chant them properly. And so that's another place where chanting comes into the threefold practice of the Kriya Yoga. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, just to add, you know, to what Eddie said is this also the Ishwara Pranidhana. What my teachers helped me see actually, you know, when I was, I've been teaching Vedic mantras, you know, for a number of years now, but my Vedanta teachers helped me see that by teaching these to yoga students, I'm helping them with Ishwara Pranidhana. It's a direct connection to Ishwara. You know, this understanding of how the universe is organized and my own relationship with it and my relationship with myself is this truth is embedded in all Vedic mantras. And by chanting these mantras, this, you know, this connection to Ishwara is, becomes more and more vivid. That's really, that's really important also. Um, and, uh, and thanks for saying that. I'm sorry to jump in here, Nina. For speaking from a, a non-native or Western perspective, so growing up without any spiritual or religious guidance in the assimilated Jew atmosphere of the 1960s and 70s in New York City, I was searching for something but I didn't have any structure for that. And there are many, many people like me. That's why we have so many people from the West who come to something like yoga or meditation or Buddhism because they're seeking some spiritual gap which has not been nourished in us. And so with the chanting and with Ishwara Pranidhana, um, this is like one of the key things that, that I think people coming to yoga are really looking for. They end up doing asanas but really what we're looking for is that spiritual nourishment and we need the guidance. We need it to be filled in because uh, many of us have not received that um, in an era that we grew up um, in America. I can't speak for Europe, but I can speak for America for sure. And I think that's why so many people in this country have been really moved by um, chanting of Krishna Das and um, Sham Das and uh, all of the Das family, and uh, as well as now learning Vedic chanting, which so many people are doing very well, and that they've learned also from Krishnamacharya Yoga Mandiram or the satsangs of Shivananda Yoga Vedanta Centers. And, um, because there's this longing that we have that wasn't being met, and, um, and so now we're finding it from within these amazing Hindu traditions. So thank you for helping us to fill the gap. Would you agree with that, Nina, at all? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what I what pulled me to, um, you know, I started my first yoga class in a gym 
where I used to go and lift weights and run on the treadmill and all that. And somebody said to me, um, why don't you try this out? You know, you might like this. And without knowing what yoga was or anything, I felt um, somehow so pulled to the practice. I mean, she did a little bit of breath practice and there was just something about it that was so contemplative and centering that I was drawn to that. And immediately after that, I heard you know, I had been listening to Indian classical music, which is uh, something that is just part of my daily life and has been for a long time. I really love, I never studied it, but I love to hear it. So when I heard the chanting and I, it brought me back to my days as a youth where my grandfather was a, you know, he was, he was an engineer, Shantala. And um, he was an engineer for the British government back in the days, and he built bridges and roads. And that's how I knew my grandfather. But when I went home on holiday, he had a harmonium. Um, we lived abroad, so I didn't see his home very much, except when we went back on vacation. And when I asked him to play the harmonium, he said, well, um, you know, you should sing with me. And we had no idea what we were going to be doing. So he did a very simple... Uh, Ganesh chant bhajan that we sang back and forth and the thing about being in his presence was that you know he was uh, when you were talking about uh, the threshold puja and all you know that reminded me so much of of what we did in my grandfather's home so every night um, the altar room was um, Sharada Devi from Shringeri. That was the, the deity. And we went around and there was a Tulsi plant in the front and just all the ritual of of uh, lighting the diyas and doing arti every night and blowing the kancha, like all of that was just so, um, it really resonated with me and it's always stayed with me. So I've always been drawn to going and practicing in temples. But I guess what I what it, what it had to happen was for me to grow up, come here to the West and follow the path of these practices in a way that helped me understand, yes, I had a longing, but what did I have a longing for? What am I longing for? Um, and as the more I do these practices, the more I realize I'm just, the longing for Ishwar, I mean, Ishwar is not really outside of us. It he, he, she, they appear to be outside of us, but they're really inside. How do we learn to trust our own heart? How do we get through, um, you know, what are whatever negative kleshas or obstacles that might hinder the peace of our own heart, you know, with, whether that's anger or jealousy or any of these things. And I found that the more I did these practices without really understanding why, I was drawn to them. My longing pulled me and my longing continues to keep me in this place where I only want to practice more and more. I mean, I sing Kirtan, but I wanted to go deeper into the mantra. And so when you, Eddie, introduced me to Shantala without realizing it, um, I, as soon as I saw her on your Instagram interview, I knew that I wanted to do what she was doing. I had started learning Sanskrit uh, in a different way where, you know, we were learning the, the script and the grammar. And I just, I couldn't get it. I just, it was not working for me. And so when I saw that her way of teaching was to just 
do the practice first and then you know you can we can find out all the technicalities and understand that was my that's how i could dive into the pool was to really do the practice by the actual chanting go ahead shantala no i was going to say that in in our veda school that's what our gurus you know encourage us they if if i ask him for can you explain this mantra to me he says first you learn to chant it you practice it you know you have to show your devotion by perfecting the sounds because the sound that shruti is you know that is the what you need to first tap into how can you expect to understand the meaning when you can't reproduce the sound they say i mean even today the chalakares while they live the teaching they don't teach you know you they don't teach you the meanings of mantras they don't do anything you know that to feed your intellect there they just make you practice i mean it's really hard work you have to get in there you have to sit on the ground no cushions none of that you know you just have to have good <laughs> hip flexibility so <laughs> and sit on the ground practice for one hour you know and there's no break nothing there's no explanations in between and there's a methodology there's a pedagogy and if you keep practicing you'll be able to keep up otherwise you drop out and that's it you know so there is it's just hard work and practice i find that very beautiful so you don't need to start learning sanskrit first would you say that um the wisdom that arises it's sort of self revelatory would you say at the more you do the practice like that whatever progress we might uh, say that we have is really a function of how where we are on the path and how much uh, effort we put in absolutely that's what guruji says you know he says that even that is in our samskaras in our karma not everyone wants brahma vidya you know but this practice it reveals itself to you in a way you know that you're ready for so not everyone is going to go off to vedanta classes and say that i want brahma vidya you know after learning vedic chanting but shifts are happening basis where you are so wherever you are you still you know reap many benefits of the practice but most importantly people learn to have a practice and a focus which otherwise you know would not be there because without a daily investment in practice you can't progress in vedic chanting it's in fact it's very close to what edi does you know with the ashtanga system i find so many similarities you know because it's the same thing you know the ashtanga student uh, is an ideal vedic chanting student in fact because they don't show up to class with these expectations of learning a lot on that day they know that you have to learn in incremental bits every single day you know it's the same practice every day but something will change a little bit some day something will click and then you can progress a little bit but without that everyday practice it's not you're not going to see any transformation so this is this is the most important thing about vedic chanting it's not you know expecting some miraculous shifts to happen but these small incremental changes which are a result of your own investment and effort into the practice and you gain such a focus and clarity at least this is my experience i've never had so much clarity on my own path and what i should be doing you know before i started so such a serious practice of vedic chanting 
may I add one thing there? You know, the and from the, you know, from the yogic perspective, um, I mean, I don't even know why I said the yogic perspective, but anyway, this is also contained in Taittiriya Upanishad. The, um, you know, we have these five uh, mayas. Now they're called koshas also in later times. And um, the um, manomaya, the field of the mind, is um, the mind is just a, a, a processing field of information. And it's not such a big deal. And in the West, we put a lot of emphasis on the mind in collecting information and wanting to understand things and wanting to know things and wanting to know why something works or how it works. So but this is all happening in the field of, of information. And information is just something we can use to navigate life. It's not the end goal. It's not you know the purpose of the whole project. What we want to do is get beyond that field of information to something deeper, which is the intellect, where we have discernment and clarity um, and all the things Shantala was just talking about. And so mantra is in the yogic system said to be the thing that helps us to cross over the manas, manasaha trayate. And so by crossing over this field of information, the, the mantras in Vedic chanting does this in you know, a wonderful way brings us past this field of having to know stuff into this field of the vijnana maya, the, the faculty of discernment, but also the place where we can experience what it is that we are doing fully and let that experience teach us something rather than depending on the mind to figure things out, which we can never figure it all out. So this is one of the powers of Veda also, and of asanas too, and pranayama when we do it in such a way that we're not being um, cumulative about it, that we're accumulating stuff and, you know, in, in getting good at things. But when you enter into that zone where it actually helps you to sort of kind of transcend your body a little bit and your breath and your mind, because you're using it as a vehicle to go to who's the experiencer, you know, who, what is the experiencer? And so that's, um, mantra does that. That's what mantra is designed to do, I think. And, and asanas are to help us access uh, the steps that lead towards that. But just doing asanas is not enough. Unless you stand on one for 10,000 years. Then it's yeah. enough. Well, my guru, Siddhima, said both things that you are saying. Um, you know, one is that Practice discipline was, she, she constantly said that to us. You must have a disciplined practice. Choose what it is, but do it, like whatever that it is for you. And also, she said, you know, Ram Nam Me Bari Shakti, which is basically we can accomplish anything by chanting the divine name. So that's all in alignment with everything that you both are saying. Um, I want to just touch upon. Shantala, I know that you're studying still with your teacher, um, M.S. Srinivasan, and he shared with us some beautiful audio because uh, he lives in India and you're in Brussels. And though we get to see you on Zoom this way, when you study with him, um, you're basically reciting over a cell phone <laughs> while life is going on in Bangalore. And um, it's really beautiful to, to see that energy and that effort go into you doing your practice. 
um, do you chant with him? How often do you get to to study with him in a week or in a month? How does that work for you? It's highly disciplined. So ever since I started studying with him, it's every Thursday and Friday of the week. And there are no breaks. So the only breaks I take are this one week at Christmas and I take two weeks in August. <laughs> and even that initially was quite shocking for him. <laughs> this whole European idea of uh, going on vacation. And it's because my children are small and they, you know, I need to spend uh, quality time with them where they don't see me doing something else. So it's only for that. So he's okay with it now. So it's very disciplined. I um, practice every Thursday and Friday and on the phone, you know, I wanted to make it as easy as possible for him. So he didn't have to be seated. He didn't have to be seated, seated in front of a computer. And, you know, he doesn't even have a computer. It's his daughter <laughs> who sort of organizes everything. So I told him, I'll just call him on his cell phone and it's easy for him. You know, he can be downstairs in his shala or he can be uh, relaxing and drinking his coffee and basically the first part of the class is me reciting what uh, I have learned previously. So it's like a revision. And the second half of the class, he teaches me something new. And this is very, very disciplined because in Vedic chanting, we have to continue to keep learning something new because that is what keeps you sharp. He says, if you want to be razor sharp, you have to keep learning something new Otherwise, you know, all your, you know, this, this, this sharpness, this laser sharpness you've created for yourself starts to go blunt. And uh, I really do uh, see that because when I come back from this two week gap, you know, I can already feel like I have years of catching up to do. It feels that way. So it's, uh, it's very disciplined and uh, he's very, um, um, he's very generous with me, with his time. And it was, in, in, you know, he told me only about two or three years into my practice with him when he sort of shared with me that I'm the only student he has, he teaches one-on-one -on -one with. And he wasn't even sure how he got himself into that situation, he says. And he ascribes the whole thing to me um, enjoying the fruits of my mother's lifelong sadhana. He says that, you know, somehow he's involved in this higher purpose of me sharing with, you know, a larger group of people. And so, and when I started uh, practicing with him, it wasn't even an ambition for me that I would share Vedic chanting, you know, with so many people around the world. And it was none of that. It was just that I was looking for a teacher and you know, of course, you know, how I don't know if you know how Bangalore works, but <laughs> it's all word of mouth. And I have this cousin who knows him and this phone call gets put in and my father makes a visit and, you know, all of this recommendations happen. And I, I had to audition <laughs> as well. And he sort of had to see if I was someone he could even teach. And then I went through this six to eight months, I think, of I call it my karate kid moment, <laughs> which is, <laughs> you know, I would call and then he would either not be at home or he would have forgotten. And then he once told me not to feel bad and that he's just not used to doing anything on the phone and that sort of thing. And then I started learning Lalita Sahasranama with him. So my, my vision was to learn Vedic chanting. And he's like, 
let's do Lalita Sahasranama. <laughs> so I spent several months learning that something I'd already learned, but I learned it in the Vedic pronunciation way, which was very tough to do. So I had to unlearn things and learn again. And after that, Vishnu Sahasranama. And then he said, let's do Aditya Hridayam, you know. <laughs> so it was just, he just wanted to see, you know, if I was really, if I was really serious. And I was just all in full surrender mode. I was like, I will learn what you teach. And so it was only after I learned Aditya Hridayam that he uh, initiated me into Vedic chanting after that. But I was already, what I didn't know was I was fully initiated already because all of these non-Vedic mantras, so to speak, you know, Vishnu Sahasranama, Lalita Sahasranama, all of that, I chant with Vedic rules. So he had taught me all the rules without the swara, of course, with these mantras. And so when I started learning Vedic chanting, it went very fast. You know, it was like rapidly progressing. And so it's been uh, wonderful more than anything from, from him when he blessed me to teach. It was also how you are as a person, you know. So it was not just your skill in being able to chant and replicate. But for him, many things were important. Things like we don't comment upon someone else's chanting. You know, we don't say bad things about someone. If someone is chanting it incorrectly, we don't make comments about it and things like that. You put your head down, you do your chanting because we are learning it in a very accurate, very specific, very pure way. You know, he's from a he's from several generations of people who have received you know, his father, his grandparents, they're fourth or fifth generation uh, that he's uh, that he can track back to. So it's a very pure tradition, but also very respectful of how others might be reciting it. So these were some, you know, uh, I wouldn't say uh, unsaid conditions, but it's something he sort of ingrained very nicely, you know, into the teaching. And so even now with my students also, I say, please don't send me other people's chanting to check. Lots of people do that. They'll send me something, a YouTube link and say, can you check this? Can you tell me if this is right? I'm like, don't look at other people, just study it, you know, instead of doing this whole comparison game. So these things for me were very inspiring and very, uh, very important for me as well. So, you know, in terms of compatibility of, you know, the value system, they're a really wonderful family to study with. And they don't uh, reject, if you're a, usually pundits in India will only teach other Brahmins and Brahmin men. <laughs> so the Chalakiris have a different way, you know, it's beautiful. They just ask people to be following Ahimsa, you know, a vegetarian diet. They don't say Brahmin. We'll teach anyone, you just have to be vegetarian, no alcohol, you know, so you can keep your mind sharp. They're also not judging people who are, you know, drinking alcohol or eating meat. They're just saying that, you know, you're not ready for this practice, which, you know, requires, you know, your breath, your subtle energies to be so highly developed that these practices benefit that it's, you know, it's conducive to the practice. And they teach women, which is very rare for Vedic Pandits. You know, he initiates women. I mean, he's teaching me one-on-one. -on -one. It's completely unheard of. In the in the Vedic Pandit community, I was so inspired when I saw that. I, I was I was so amazed to see that was happening. I'm really so glad, and you're passing that on to us. <laughs> so, Eddie, I I know that you are a little um, 
uh, pressed for time. So I just wanted to ask you if there was anything you wanted to ask Shantala before you leave. And Shantala, if you have more minutes afterwards, I still have another question for you. The main thing I'm concerned about right now is that hearing Nina about your grandfather, he was an engineer, and Shantala, she and everyone in her family were engineers. In order for me to be reborn in India next time, am I going to have to become an engineer now for that to happen? This is my main concern. Otherwise, I feel pretty good about everything. But if that's going to be, you know, an adhikara, I don't know if I'm going to make it to India next time. You already are an engineer. You've engineered a whole system here for us to follow. <laughs> um, I um, I don't have any any questions um, for Shantala in as as per the Hindu tradition and learning in these types of ways. I've learned that I'm not supposed to ask questions. I'm just supposed to sit and and listen and learn and soak it all in. And it's been really amazing and fascinating to hear. What, um, what her learning process has been with her gurus. And, um, and I've really enjoyed hearing your questions for her, Nina. You're a, um, a very gracious hostess and interviewer, and you have an amazing way of um, bringing stories and, and the important insights out from people. So I've really enjoyed sitting here, listening to you, uh, guiding us through, through this conversation. It's been so pleasant and educational and inspiring. And now I know I definitely want to go to bank. By the way, I'm from Mysore, so I'm, I'm, you know, basically South Indian like you guys, but I'm pretty certain I want to go to Bangalore and become a disciple of Shantala's father. I could see why. <laughs> Eddie, it warms my heart. Thank you so much for being here. We're really so grateful. And I will see you in our next class with Shantala. Tomorrow morning, bye bye. <laughs> Lots of love to you. My, I there were a couple of things I wanted to ask you because this was very moving for me when you shared this with us in class. So, can you remind me um, when it is that you met um, M.S. Srinivasan, like, and you started studying from which year was that? It was 2016. So it was not so long ago. Um, in 2016 is when I started studying with them like really regularly. Yeah, yes. I think but for, for several months. Or, I can't remember how long before that the process had started, but it's in 2016 that I really received like a formal initiation. So what I wanted to ask you to do was to... Um, We've heard about your childhood, how you've studied. Um, I want to fast forward to your 44th birthday and the story that you told us uh, about what happened on your 44th birthday. And specifically because, again, um, you know, whenever we went to see my guru, Siddhima, any challenge that arose, she always asked us to to pray. And she said, you know, this is really the only way uh, that you can get through what you have to get through. So hearing your story was so aff affirming for me, uh, 
not that I need any more affirmation. I can see just from practicing over these years how it helps us. But if you would share that story, I think it could be great inspiration for many people going through a hard time. I'd be happy to, Nina. So, um, so this is, you know, I mean, it's one of the most uh, significant events, you know, of my recent years, I'd say, you know, I mean, uh, because um, this was the morning of my 44th birthday and um, I suffered a spontaneous a brain hemorrhage, so which is a bleeding in the brain. And there was absolutely no signs leading to it, you know. So um, I practiced yoga and meditation. I was, you know, teaching, chanting for a living. And I had a very relaxed uh, lifestyle because back then I didn't do many classes either. I didn't have many students. I'd quit my job. I quit my corporate job, you know, in 2013 or so. So I was uh, really in a very free space. And so it's not one of those things where you can sort of say that, you know, this is because of work stress, all of these things. So the entire family was really shocked by that event, you know. And I remember when it happened because, you know, it comes with a thunderclap headache. You know, it's as if someone hit you on the back of your head, you know, with a baseball bat. And it's just like a sudden boom. And then it's as if um, my brain was on fire. And, you know, the, the pain is, you know, it's just indescribable. But I could, I could experience lucidity through this. I knew something was happening. And I could immediately sort of tell the people around me that something is happening and I need help. And you know, so my husband was there within eight minutes. I was uh, not at home and we made it to the hospital and people in the hospital here. And Belgium has an amazing healthcare system. But because I was so lucid, I was telling them that you need to check something is happening. I think I'm dying. And, you know, I got the eye roll and everything because I was speaking so clearly. But some one, you know, person thought of doing a CT scan and they could see the, the bleeding. So anyway, fast forward all that, you know, I spent a lot of time in hospital and everything. I got excellent care. But one of the things for me was they could not find the source of this event. They could not find the source of the bleed, like why it happened. They didn't know. So it was just something that I've had since birth or, you know, there's no explanation. I'm one of those small percentage of, you know, uh, unsolved <laughs> cases. And um so I sort of, you know, and this time I have small children. And for me, it was a very practical sankalpa, you know, a determination that since I didn't die, <laughs> I have to make the best of this life, you know, the second life, so to speak. So my birthday now has become a double birthday. I celebrate <laughs> like a double birthday. And this event sort of turned into the most um, transformative experience for me. Because so many things happened, you know, as part of that recovery, you know, there's one spa that I taught in, you know, like you said, you learned uh, yoga in a gym. I, I taught a Vedic chanting class in a spa once. <laughs> they sent me a coupon for a treatment and, you know, so many things. My neighbor cooked food for my children for two months and people were bringing me food to the hospital and my recovery was so rapid and so complete, I felt. And I remember chanting mantra while doing the, you know, doing all these tests. And, you know, I had so many surgical, non-surgical procedures, so many things and chanting mantra through it. And I said, I'm going to just be the best 
brain hemorrhage survivor, you know, for the sake of my family. And for me, the way to get there was prayer. You know, so I came out very weak and I used mantra to cleanse my system first. So I did a lot of silent chanting because I had no energy at all. And I slowly built in the practice of chanting again. So I, it sort of had to relearn everything almost. And um, I had to build back my strength, build back, you know, my breath. I had nothing. I felt like I had nothing. So I had to build everything back. And it was the most amazing process because I just prayed. It's the, let's say, it's not, the, it's not that it was the first time I was praying. But I think it was really the time I started to value the outcome of the prayer, you know. And I had amazing teachers who helped me see that, you know, you have a choice in life, which is you're helpless. I mean, you can't help these situations, you know. You can lead the best lifestyle, but you can still suffer things, you know. The body can still suffer from things. So even though you have a spiritual practice, you're not invincible. This is one thing I learned. So that is humility in itself. And then, you know, you can be in a position where you feel helpless and yet you have a choice. You can either feel helpless and feel bitter and feel sort of down or you can convert that using prayer technology, I call it. <laughs> so you can turn this helplessness into a positive action by prayer. And when you do that, I think that there is no choice but for the universe to respond to you positively. There will be a positive response. And I felt a lot of that. My practice really accelerated since then. You know, so many things, you know, so I learned uh, Ayur Mantra with uh, Guruji Srinivasan. You know, he taught me this to develop my breath and to develop my subtle energies. I mean, these are not something that, you know, the, the neurologists help with. They help, they help you recover. I think that life-saving is so amazing. And, but these subtle practices help build a vitality that we don't otherwise experience. And he taught me the, the Gayatri Pranayama, which has been, you know, you, when you, um, I mean, I hope no, no one ever has to experience it, but with any type of brain injury, you know, whether through... Um, a hemorrhage or through an accident or whatever, you have this bleed in the brain, you're left with what we call brain fog, you know, neuro fatigue. These are things debilitating. You know, you can't think, you're forgetful. You can't remember what you were doing uh, standing in a room. You know, you enter a room and you forget why you're there. <laughs> those types of things. And for me, I have none of those symptoms because uh, of these practices. So this Gayatri Pranayama, I practiced every day. There's a certain way, I mean, you have to be initiated into it and you use it for a pranayama and then you do Gayatri Japa. So it's a typical Vedic, you know, Brahmin practice, which uh, Guruji taught me um, in, a, in a sort of um, succinct way, in a, in a brief way, you know, something sustainable for a daily practice, which I do even now. And it's been the most amazing thing. You know, it's as if... Instead of brain fog, I have this bright sun shining and everything is so clear. What I have to do is so clear. You know, the choices present themselves to me in terms of, you know, what I can do with my choices in life. But actually, there is no choice. 
I'm <laughs> doing what I am. You know, recently somebody asked me, what is your dream, you know? And I couldn't come up with anything because I'm living my dream, you know? This is it. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing greater that I could dream for, you know? I spend most of my time practicing Vedic mantras. And I'm in this great position of privilege where I get to share it with a community who's interested in this practice, imagine. <laughs> so I couldn't dream of a bigger dream than this. And so, you know, for me, sharing of Ayur Mantra, for example, has become people started to write to me after that because I started to share this experience. Many people with similar condition would write to me or other things, you know, people would write to me saying, my brother is recovering from a surgery. What can I help him with? And Ayur Mantra is such a gentle practice and so beautiful, you know. It, basically, it's a prayer that is saying that, you know, may my subtle energies, which is my Pranavayu, my Vyanavayu, my Apanavayu, these are the subtle, you know, vital energies in the body. May all of this be nourished by the divine, you know, and May my eyes be nourished, may my hearing be nourished, and may my mind be nourished. And may all of this be very well established, not only in me, but in everyone. And so this was my uh, go-to practice when I was recovering. Can you share this with us? Yeah, I can, I can. I would love yeah, it's to. Yeah, it's a short mantra, I can, uh, I can chant it, you know. Ayurdhehi pranandhehi, apanandhehi vyanandhehi, chakshurdhehi shrotrandhehi, manodhehi vachandhehi, atmanandhehi pratishthandhehi, mandhehi maidhehi, Thank you for sharing that. So I'm all, I'm sure many of you could hear um, the way in which she used her voice specifically for certain notes and also the pronunciation and the use of the breath for the sounds of the consonants and the vowels. So that's a lot of what we're learning with Shantala. I think you and I could maybe talk all day <laughs> somehow, but what I want to do is to just let everybody know that Shantala has so beautifully constructed her website, which is um, vedastudies.com, correct? Yes, correct. I go there every day. I should know this by heart. Um, and there uh, she does very long-term courses. She also does short uh, practices or sadhanas. She also has a lot of free offerings where you can join her as she does different prayers for different things. For example, she's doing, um, we did Mahamritunjaya Mantra 108 times Japa for uh, COVID relief in, in India. Um, and then we're doing a shortened version of Vishnu Sahasranam also this Friday. So I, for me, I feel like I'm living my dream by uh, having Shantala in my life. I'm so very grateful, Shantala, really. Would you be able to... Um, close our meeting together with um, any mantra that you think 
you have so many students and you know what they like to practice. It could be Shanti Mantra and anything, whatever you feel you would like to share at this moment. Maybe I can, I can close, close with the with the Shanti, Shanti Mantra, Mantra, which is asking several different deities for blessings of happiness. I think we could use <laughs> we could use some uh, in India. We could use some worldwide, and it's a beautiful uh, Shanti Mantra asking the morning sun, the midday sun, the evening sun to bless us with happiness. And asking Indra, Brahaspati, Vishnu, all of them to bless us with happiness. And that may I be able to see the truth and speak the truth. Shanno Mitra Shamvarunaha Shanno Bhavatvaryama Shanna Indro Brahaspatihi Shanno Vishnururukramaha Namo Brahmane Namaste Vayo Twameva Pratyakram Brahmasi Twameva Pratyakram Brahma Vadeshyami Ratam Vadeshyami Satyam Vadeshyami Tanmamavatu Tadvaktaramabatu Avatumam Avatu Vaktaram Om Shanti 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 Shantala, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. And uh, I look forward to seeing you very soon. And for all the listeners, um, remember that you can find Shantala on vedastudies.com and uh, explore all her offerings there. Look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you so so much, much, Nina. Nina. Thank you so much for listening today. During this time of COVID, I've been so grateful to be able to receive teachings virtually from teachers I would not have normally had access to. One of them is Shantala Sri Ramaya. For more information about her and her teachings, please visit vedastudies.com. You can find more information on Eddie Stern at eddiestern.com. And you know where to find me, ninaraochant.com. Jai Shri Ram. Jai Sitaram. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today 
to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now.